I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. We the People Friends 2020 was a dramatic and eventful year for constitutional debate, starting with the impeachment trial of President Trump and then the coronavirus pandemic, crucial conversations about racial inequality and litigation over the election. We'll look back at these important events and more on our annual Constitutional Year in Review episode. I'm so excited to be joined by two great constitutional scholars and two great friends of We the People. Melissa Murray is Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network at NYU Law School. She's an expert in constitutional law, family law, reproductive rights, and justice. She's the author, most recently, of The Symbiosis of Abortion and Precedent, published this year in the Harvard Law Review, and a co-host of the podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Melissa, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to be here. And John Yu is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law and Director of the Korea Law Center, the California Constitution Center, and the Program in Public Law and Policy at Berkeley Law. His most recent book is Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. He's also a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. John, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It's always great to be virtually home in Philadelphia, where I belong. Um, we all belong in spirit in Philadelphia, the home of the Constitution. Um, John, in the spirit of your new book, Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, I want to ask you about the performance of the constitutional system in the wake of our election. This is the week that the Electoral College declared uh, Joe Biden to be uh, president-elect. Uh, some have argued that the fact that the courts and election officials evaluated the post-election litigation in a neutral and nonpartisan way showed the system worked. Others say that the fact that it took six weeks for President Trump's opponents to recognize Vice President Biden's victory as president-elect shows the system is broken. What is your view about how the Constitution fared in the wake of the election? It's a really interesting question, Jeff. And of course, we're right in the middle of it as the electors met in their states and just sent their votes to Washington, D.C. yesterday. I think that the uh, Electoral College showed its real virtues this election uh, in two ways. One, uh, people uh, may not realize, but uh, I think they now notice that the Electoral College uh, sets up a system where the existing president and really the federal government have almost nothing to do with picking the president. The president's really chosen in the states. The Constitution gives uh, the job of choosing the electors to the state legislatures, which in every state have turned around and vested that in the people through popular election. The president's not involved in picking a successor. The federal government's not really involved in picking the successor. Uh, the second thing I think the Electoral College has shown uh, in terms of virtues this year has been this more fancy social science phrase we use, which is resilience. Uh, that's a big thing in the study of institutions these days and stubborn governments, businesses, and so on. How do you design systems so that they are resilient to shock, to unanticipated challenges, 
um, to disruptions. And I'd be the first to admit, President Trump is a terribly disruptive political figure. But the Electoral College, because it dispersed power throughout the states to the 50 states, it is almost impossible, I think, to successfully tamper with and defraud the Electoral College system in the way that President Trump alleged, because you would have to interfere with the way not just multiple states, but dozens and dozens of counties that you would have to know about beforehand uh, would be the crucial counties in order to sway the election. And so I think what this shows, which is, I think, the Constitution's basic message in institution after institution, is the importance of decentralizing government power which itself creates a resilient uh, system. And I think the Electoral College showed that more this year than perhaps any election since the middle 19th century. Melissa, you heard John's argument. The Electoral College worked because the president can't pick a successor and the system was resilient. Uh, Do you agree or do you believe that the system was tested in ways that suggest it may break in the future? Well, first, let me say that I'm not sure the resilience of the Electoral College necessarily speaks to the question of the health of the system overall. So it is true that the Electoral College was resilient and it did its job yesterday. But we've seen throughout the entire period from the election until now that there has been incredible stress on the system overall. I mean, anytime you have local and state governments worried about Uh, their health, their safety, while they're counting ballots, while they're getting ready to assign electors, all of that suggests a system that is incredibly stressed. And I think part of that is because of these efforts to delegitimize what have been normal processes that have worked in past elections and that were working in this election as well. On the same day that the Electoral College met, the first vaccines were given in the United States. And that leads me to ask about COVID and the Constitution. John, you have written about the uh, limits and extent of Congress's power to impose a quarantine and to regulate the vaccine in light of the Defense Production Act and other delegations of power from Congress to the president. Is there any act that President-elect Biden, in conjunction with Congress, might uh, do with regard to COVID that you think would exceed Congress or the president's power from a national mask mandate to a national quarantine? That's a tough question, uh, Jeff. I think actually you're not going to see the Biden and Trump approaches to COVID differ that much, but it's because of the question you asked, because the constitution, as it does with the electoral college, the constitution, again, maybe for good, maybe for ill, disperses power, even over things like a public health emergency. Uh, The Constitution doesn't give the federal government any explicit power in public health. Uh, And so the power, again, is driven down to the states uh, and they are decentralized. That means that they can promote a diversity of powers. In fact, I I like to say um, back in March, I wrote a piece when the lockdowns first started saying uh, people are going to think it's the federal government's job, but the frontline players and policy are going to be the state governors. And I actually wrote a line uh, which everyone thought I was crazy for, but I think turned out to be right, which was that. President Trump's re-election was essentially going to be in the hands of the state governors because it was their decisions that would determine how successfully we could fight the pandemic. The federal government's role is not to open and close every business in the country and decide, uh, you know, institution, institution, school by school, who's open and who's closed, but to provide the things that are set out in the Constitution as Article One, Section 8 powers, the spending power. Um, the taxing power. So the federal government can raise money 
devoted towards buying PPE, devoted towards uh, accelerating research into the vaccine, distributing the vaccine. It can provide technical and scientific information. Uh, but what it doesn't have the power to do is the federal government just doesn't have that many people working for it. It doesn't have that much of an institution at the day-to-day city-state level that it would take to set a uniform policy about the pandemic. And so really, um, just like the federalism informs the Electoral College, uh, Jeff, it also informs the response to the pandemic. So what's outside those powers? I don't think that uh, President Biden could, for example, mandate a national lockdown of every business, of every church, of you know every school. I don't think President Biden could uh, impose a national mask mandate on everybody. Um, I think he'd run into the federalism limits and the limits on the uh, executive uh, in areas where Congress has already acted. Um, but I don't think that really handicaps the federal government uh, either. It's going to roll out a vaccine. Uh, a lot of governors are coordinating. The federal government is providing information. Um, I, I Frankly, I, I mean, I wish it were different, but I don't think the Biden administration is going to be able to do a lot that's going to change the course of this terrible disease as it goes through society. Uh, Melissa, do you agree or disagree that Congress could not impose a national mask mandate or require the closing of all churches? And then maybe talk about some of the recent cases the Supreme Court has heard involving uh, churches and COVID shutdowns and whether you agree with the majority or dissents that the states have broader powers to impose quarantines than the Supreme Court is willing to acknowledge. John is exactly right in outlining the division of power between the state governments and the federal government. I think the only way that the federal government could, say, for example, initiate a mandatory mask requirement um, is if they did so on federal property, for example. That might be one area where they could do it. Um, Or if President-elect Biden um, would impose a lockdown of federal buildings or something like that, that might be permissible. But broadly, I think, as John says, that is unlikely. Um, Nevertheless, the model that John was outlining was one that I think could be appropriately described as a kind of cooperative federalism model in which there is a role for the state governments, perhaps in ordering shutdowns or in dealing with local issues involving businesses and whatnot. And there is a federal response, whether it's pushing out guidelines for stemming the flow of transmission or initiating funds for a vaccine. And I think what the difficulty was, at least in the early days of the pandemic, is that we really didn't have that coordinated federal and state response. And instead, what we had was more like the 50 different laboratories of experimentation, all of which were sort of doing their own thing about this virus, where there really needed to be a coordinated response. So on the one hand, what John lays out, I think, is exactly what we should have seen and perhaps is aspirational. But at least in the early days of the pandemic, we really had most of the action really being isolated on the state and local levels. And it's not clear that that was what needed to happen in order to make the most effective dent in this. Um, In terms of the court's response to many of the challenges that arose over efforts to 
stanch the spread of the disease. I, I think there were real questions, certainly early on, about whether or not the state's police power to legislate in favor of public health um, could co-opt, for example, fundamental rights regarding religion or, for example, abortion, which was also on, on the table. We saw at least initially the Supreme Court weighing down with some deference to states. Um, so a couple of cases out of California um, and in other places around the country in which the court deferred to executive orders and state legislature shutdown orders um, over claims from religious institutions that these uh, were um, harsh measures that were singling out religion for harsh treatment. More recently, however, and again, this may have something to do with the change in personnel on the court, um, we've seen the court maybe go the other way. Um, uh, we saw just before Thanksgiving, the court come down with a really consequential ruling in a New York case in which it held that Andrew Cuomo's executive order limiting the number of attendees at particular religious institution services um, and in other places where individuals might be singing or talking loudly or whatnot um, was was a treatment of religion that was too harsh and violated the First Amendment. Um, and in today, for example, we saw that the court again came down with another ruling dismissing a series of cases and instructing the lower courts to refer back to that New York ruling. So the pendulum seems to be swinging. Um, some say it's because of the change in personnel on the court. It could also be because we're 10 months into this and maybe we know a little bit more about the disease and perhaps there is less deference to uh, the state legislatures and state officials um, for, regarding what they know and how they're trying to deal with the disease, given that there is more information that's available. So we're seeing sort of a wide range of activity on that front. John, we're talking about the Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Barrett has joined. We saw in the New York free exercise case that the balance of the court may have changed. Describe how you think this change will be most significant, uh, both the substantive areas that you think will be most affected by the joining of Justice Barrett and also Chief Justice Roberts, who's made institutional legitimacy such a keynote of his chief justiceship. To what degree will his ability to foster narrow, unanimous, or bipartisan opinions be made more difficult? Yeah, it's interesting. And of course, this was the focus of uh, the hearings for Amy Coney Barrett and whether uh, her addition to the court is going to really shift the direction of the justices. I, I tend to think she will. Uh, you, of course, none of us has any to, anything to go on. I don't think she's actually written, you know, published her first majority opinion yet. Um, if she had, it's probably in some interstate water dispute that nobody read. So I can't tell, you know, what she's actually done aside of, as you mentioned, Jeff, from that one religion case where she voted with the, you know, conservative justices, you know, Thomas Alito, uh, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, um, against the uh, lockdowns of religious institutions in New York uh, and in California. And Chief Justice Roberts, as you mentioned, Jeff, had been trying. Uh, to keep the court pretty much out of reviewing uh, any of these individual right claims against the pandemic lockdowns. Uh, and when the court was, uh, you know, five to four or four to four, he, he could play that role in the middle. Um, you know, we've seen that also in some other cases, even before uh, the pandemic, where the chief justice was trying to be the fifth vote, kind of taking the place of Kennedy and O'Connor, uh, going all the way back to Justice Powell, I suppose, in the early 80s. 
Um, I think now with Amy Coney Barrett on the court, Roberts's ability to do that is evaporated. Uh, I don't think the conservatives need Chief Justice Roberts. I think if he wants to keep influencing the direction of the conservative majority, he's going to have to join them and be part of a sixth justice uh, majority. I especially think this is true uh, because Amy Coney Barrett, in her hearings, uh, you know, if there anybody was her judicial role model, it was Antonin Scalia. And one thing Scalia was, was that he was not the kind of justice who was uh, compromising to build majorities, right? He was, he and I think Thomas were very happy to be out on the extremes of the court if they could uh, lay claim to some principle. Uh, and so I think that spells trouble for Chief Justice Roberts's project. Um, you know, he maybe he got it this far, and that was as far as he needed to get through the Trump years uh, without getting the court too embroiled into claims of being uh, partisan. But I don't think he's going to have that ability anymore. So what areas, so just to finish up quickly, Jeff, your question, what areas is this going to affect? I think the most obvious one is abortion. Uh, we could probably talk about June Medical uh, and Chief Justice Roberts being the, the fifth vote to uh, uphold uh, state restrictions on state efforts to regulate abortion. Um, I also think affirmative action uh, may be on a clock now because uh, that's a case where even Chief Justice Roberts in the past has uh, voted for more colorblind principles, but he I could have seen him also being afraid to strike down affirmative action in colleges and universities. Um, I think you're going to see it in more rights for states. Um, I think you're going to see it, uh, again, especially in, in religion. Uh, I, and um, I think he's going to be... Uh, a weakened chief justice overall in all those areas and probably ones we can't even think of yet because we don't know, you know, the new issues that are going to arise under this new court. Uh, Melissa, you've written very thoughtfully on this question of the influence of Amy Coney Barrett in the Washington Post. You wrote uh, with Leah Littman, a long piece shifting from a five to four to a six to three Supreme Court majority could be seismic. And you said the impact would be not only in abortion cases, but also other areas, including uh, voting rights and uh, the heart of a functioning democracy and government. And then you've written this article in the Harvard Law Review, which sounds fascinating, on the symbiosis of abortion and precedent. So tell us, how could Justice Barrett affect the court, uh, including in abortion rights? And what is the symbiosis of abortion and precedent? Sure. Um, let, let me first go back to the, the initial point that you asked John, like what, what will happen to the chief justice? And I think John's exactly right. Um, he's definitely going to be sidelined or hobbled in some way. And I think we saw that from the beginning. As soon as Amy Coney Barrett was officially confirmed, the White House celebration of her confirmation occurred at the White House with Clarence Thomas swearing her in rather than the chief justice. The chief later swore her in at the court, but the sort of ceremonial public ceremony was one that was done with Clarence Thomas, who is closer to her judicial mentor, Antonin Scalia, than perhaps to the chief justice himself. So I think we already saw at least one glimmer of um, the president sidelining the chief justice. The other way I think the chief justice will be sidelined is because he is no longer needed for a conservative bloc now that they have a firm five on the conservative side of the court. I think that means that the chief justice has to decide whether to join them. And I think if he does join them, he does get to exercise some of his prerogatives of chief justice. So he's not completely out in the cold. Um, he can decide if he joins them who writes the majority opinion. And in that case, he could choose to keep a majority opinion for himself and maybe dictate a more narrow holding than the other five would want. Um, but again, he will have to walk a very fine line in order to maintain that 
majority where he gets to control how things are written. So I think that's one way that he might be able to do that. So I wouldn't count him out just yet. Um, in terms of what Amy Coney Barrett will mean for the court, I mean, I, I think this is perhaps the most consequential appointment that President Trump made in the course of his presidency, which, you know, had a number of appointments, um, including uh, Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. I think where this one is most consequential is one, it is the first woman that he's appointed. And I think that's meaningful, again, because he specifically singled her out to occupy the seat that was formerly occupied by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I think the sort of symbolic import of that choice um, cannot be understated. Um, as John says, she will have, I think, an important impact on the court in terms of its reproductive rights jurisprudence. And I think that's not uncalculated. Uh, the idea that five men would overturn Roe versus Wade, I think, stuck in the craw of some people who thought the optics of such a decision would be poor. I think it is less optically problematic if you have five men and one woman coming down to signal problems with Roe or even to overturn Roe entirely. And so there's a way in which having a Justice Amy Coney Baird as opposed to one of the other justices writing what I think will be at some point in the future a decision seriously challenging Roe um, gives it a kind of epistemic authority that otherwise has been missing. And I think that's critically important. She will also be important for Second Amendment rights. Um, she's already indicated that in her time on the Seventh Circuit. I, I think we'll continue to see that. We had an important Second Amendment case last term that the court really didn't get to the merit on because it determined it lacked justiciability. Uh, but I think going forward, we won't see those quick exit ramps for those kinds of cases. Um, this is a court now that is willing and I think amenable to the problem of sort of expanding the understanding of the Second Amendment beyond even what was done in Heller. So I think we'll see more of that under a court where Amy Coney Barrett, I think, has really swung it more to the right than it has been in the past. I think we should have an, another uh, round on the decisions that the Supreme Court issued this term. There are so many significant ones that uh, both of you have written about. And I'll ask you a question that Justice Byron White asked me in an unsuccessful clerkship interview long ago, namely, what's the worst decision the Supreme Court has issued? He meant ever. And I'll just ask you this year, among the many significant ones, John, you've criticized, for example, Bostick, the LGBTQ rights decision. If you had to pick one that you, you want to disagree with most, tell us what it is and why. Actually, I'm curious to hear, Jeff, what your answer was in the interview. I mean, this was a, a, a an answer that shaped the future of a constitutional law and stopped you getting on the Supreme Court and then ended up running the National Constitution Center. What are you talking about? Who cares what I think? I was very glad to have whiffed the question, but I didn't answer it directly because the man did not like dodging. Uh, so um, you've got to answer it squarely. So that's what I'm asking you to do. So here's the, here's the answer to all the uh, law students listening, trying to take notes. The correct answer is Marbury versus Mad Madison. That'll really screw people up. <laughs> but uh, that's a, it's an interesting uh, question. I, I have been critical of some of the court's uh, work product. Um, Bostick, I'm not really upset about it. I mean, I'm all for um, extending you know, Title VII protections uh, to gays and transgender. I just wanted Congress to do it. And I, I was actually looking at the polls and congressional support. I fully expected Congress was going to do that soon. 
Um, I guess the decision I find most uh, difficult and puzzling actually is the decision about the DACA program, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which you remember back in the uh, Obama administration, uh, President uh, Obama decided to not enforce the immigration laws, uh, first with the dreamers and then the parents, um, a fairly large class, you know, millions of potential cases. Um, so uh, putting aside whether you think that was constitutional or not, the thing I think that's very positive, and it's going to, I think, have a big impact on the Biden administration, as it did on the Trump administration, is this question of reversal. This is a, a, a article I'm working on right now, actually, which is, um, if a president does something, how do you reverse it? Right? This, in a way, was what Biden's platform was, is I'm going to get into office and I'm going to start reversing left and right, all these things Trump did. And so you would have thought uh, the background rule would be, if a president issued an executive order, then the next president could just repeal the executive order. If the president made one decision, the uh, next president can undo it in exactly the same way. In fact, it's interesting. Um, it's actually easier to undo presidential power than it is to do things. So think about appointing an officer. You have to get uh, Senate advice and consent. But to fire the pre officer, you don't need anyone's advice and consent. You can just do it on your own. So in this case, President Trump tried to reverse President Obama's DACA program using the exact same means that President Obama had used to basically uh, issue an order saying, as my prosecutorial discretion, I am choosing not to enforce these kinds of cases. Then President Trump says, I'd like to re I would actually like to enforce them again. The Supreme Court here said no. It, it said, uh, actually, President Trump had to go through something called the Administrative Procedure Act to undo President Obama's decisions. Uh, that could take and does take years, usually. Uh, I think this is a actually uh, something that the Biden administration might come to rue, which is the idea that you have to undergo extra steps, a longer process, a different process to reverse what the last president did. So just take, for example, suppose President Trump right before he goes out of office says, you know what, I'm just cutting everybody's taxes by 50%. I'm just not going to enforce the tax laws beyond 50% of what you owe. And yeah, Good luck, President Biden, trying to undo that for a year, uh, if you believe. So I think that's a. I think the Supreme Court, you know, sort of really structurally undermined the president. One of the main checks on presidential power, which is the check by the next president on the past president. I think that's the. I actually. So I think that's the worst decision from last from this year. Thank you for answering the Justice White question so squarely and clearly. Uh, clerkship granted, uh, do, Melissa. Same question to you. What is the worst decision, in your view, that the Supreme Court issued this year? Well, this will perhaps give me an opportunity to go back to the question I didn't answer the last time, which was to say a little bit about June Medical Services. Um, I don't disagree with the outcome in June Medical Services, which was to invalidate the Louisiana Admitting Privileges Law. Um, I, I think what concerned me most about this case was the Chief Justice's concurrence, which has become sort of the lead opinion coming out of that case that has been now subsequently used in the lower federal courts in dealing with abortion restrictions. So um, in, in the piece that you reference in the Harvard Law Review, the symbiosis of abortion and precedent, um, it, it is a comment on June Medical Services. And what I note here is that 
The Chief Justice's decision to join the liberal wing of the court to invalidate this Louisiana law was not because he'd had a change of heart about abortion regulation, but rather because he recognized that only four years earlier, the court had under, had undertaken a review of an almost identical law from Texas and had also invalidated it there. And so, as the Chief Justice said, stare decisis demanded his vote in this particular case, and he went along with the liberal wing of the court. But in writing that concurrence, um, what we actually saw was less about deference to precedent and, and really a kind of undoing of precedent. Um, in that concurrence, the Chief Justice basically unwinds the decision that the court reached in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, that 2016 case that uh, invalidated a very similar Texas admitting privileges law and returns the court's status quo back to Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the 1992 decision that affirmed Roe but gave the state's broad latitude to further restrict abortion regulation going forward. And so in my view, that was a really problematic case in part because it was heralded as a real triumph for abortion rights, when in fact, I, I think it actually sets back the project of abortion rights um, by a number of years by returning us to the 1992 status quo. And as we've seen, that's the decision that the lower federal courts have really been looking to as they go forward. So to my view, that was one of perhaps not the worst decided decision, but it was certainly a disappointing one because it was wrapped in the guise of a victory and it really was not. Thank you for explaining that so clearly. And we, the people listeners, please check out Professor Murray's article in the Harvard Law Review, which sounds fascinating. John, let me ask you about impeachment. Uh, Melissa Murray was part of a fascinating project that the Constitution Center recently sponsored, where we asked progressive, conservative, and libertarian teams to draft constitutions from scratch. And all three teams proposed making explicit that presidents can be impeached for non-criminal behavior. I'll ask first, do you agree with that proposal? And then you had argued against the impeachment of President Trump on the grounds that presidents should be able to make foreign policy decisions free from uh, interference by Congress. In retrospect, what is the legacy and what is your view of the failed impeachment of President Trump? So I, um, I wouldn't want to have a system where uh, we had something like the British no confidence motion where if you don't have the confidence of the Congress or the legislature, uh, you can be removed from office. So if the, that's what the proposal is, uh, I think that's something that the founders considered and they rejected. Um, they um, had before them something like parliamentary systems at the state level back then, and they wanted the president to be more independent. And if you go back and look at the records, uh, they 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 wanted to reject having the president being too subservient to the legislature. Now, maybe you know the uh, you know, scholars who participate in this project, they would like to increase legislative control of the president. I mean, that's uh, certainly the model that exists in much of the rest of the uh, Western world, uh, you know, which uh, you know, mostly follow the British parliamentary system. Uh, I actually think that the uh, independence of the executive has a lot of benefits. Um, and a lot of those benefits have uh, redounded to the success of the country. Um, and so for that reason, I would rather have a system where it's difficult to remove a president uh, aside from elections. Um, that said, I agree. Uh, I agree with your reading, Jeff. That um, 
high crime. I think you said this before back in the Clinton impeachment days, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors. I, I think we argued about it back then. Uh, high crimes and misdemeanors is not just crimes, uh, but it has to be important, right? The, you know, it's treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors to me means that the high crimes and misdemeanors have to be on a similar level with treason and bribery. But the reason you put that clause on is because you don't want it limited just to the crimes of treason and bribery. And so I, you know, I think, you know, I agreed back then uh, that what President Clinton's perjury, while technically criminal, wasn't important enough to remove. Uh, Here, I think in this case, President Trump's case was a lot closer. Um, I could see a case in the House for impeaching. I mean, I think you could say the president could use the foreign affairs power in such a way that was so harmful to the country that he should be removed. She should be removed. Um, you know, the founders talked about removing presidents because they lost wars. I mean, that, that's not criminal, but it's certainly important. And it certainly involves a foreign affairs power. Um, so I, I, but I think the system worked. Again, I, maybe I'm just a traditionalist defender of the Constitution and the way it worked out. But um, it seemed to me this was clear. And there were founders who talked about this exact circumstance happening. A president who might have been accused of bribery with foreign countries. They were actually far more worried about that than we were. And they said, well, look, the House can impeach. It is really hard to remove in the Senate. Maybe two-thirds is going to let presidents slide who maybe you shouldn't let slide. But they said uh, that would be such a stain on the president's reputation and character that they couldn't envision that a House that was elected by the majority of the people who would impeach a president would then not remove that president just through the next election. Right? It was the same majority of the same people. And I think they were right. I mean, that's the way it turned out. President Trump wasn't removed by impeachment, but he was removed by the November election. And so I think the system, I think the system worked, actually. Melissa, in your proposal with your colleagues for the Progressive Constitution, you did clarify that the standard for impeachment should be that the president uh, need not commit a statutory crime, but an abuse of the public trust shall be sufficient grounds for removal. But you also changed the majority requirement for impeachment and removal to three-fifths in each house to forestall partisan impeachments while ensuring that in cases of real abuses of power, the president can, in fact, be removed. Tell us more about your reasoning in making both of those changes and then apply that to the Trump impeachment. Did the president commit an abuse of the public trust and do you think he should have been removed and what will the consequences of the fact that he wasn't removed be? So I will just say, first of all, that um, both the project of drafting the progressive constitution and impeachment seems like it was 150 years ago in, in COVID time. So I'm reaching all the way back. But we had a lot of discussions in that drafting project about various proposals that we might make. And I think we came out with just the basic view that the bones of the Constitution are good. Like, like the structure actually is sound and we didn't really want to deviate from it substantially. We made a lot of choices that I think may have surprised those who were interested in a more progressive vision of the Constitution. I mean, certainly that seems to be what the take is on Twitter. Like, for example, we did not include protections for positive entitlements um, in the Constitution. Like, you know, we, we played it pretty straight because we think that the structure itself is sound and what really needs to happen is protection for democratic processes. With that in mind, impeachment was a place where we talked um, quite a lot about the various kinds of reforms that could be made. And, and we did discuss the 
prospect of moving to a parliamentary model with a no confidence vote. And we disposed of it relatively quickly. Um, again, because I think we all recognize that the level of polarization that currently exists in the country would make that too tempting and, and too easy to dispatch a president um, for political ends. And so we did not want to facilitate that. But we did make it easier um, for the houses in terms of the voting requirements to actually impeach and remove a president. And we also clarified that the idea of high crimes and misdemeanors was not confined to a statutory crime, but rather encompassed what we understood to be um, you know, sort of the kinds of abuses that public men might engage in. So again, that sort of idea of the public trust. And with that in mind, if our constitution was the one that was in use in January of this year, and if the allegations against the president had been proven, um, you know, that there was uh, significant pressure placed on the Ukraine and the withholding of foreign aid that had been congressionally appropriated in the hope that the Ukrainian government would assist in getting information on a political rival, then I think that would constitute an abuse of the public trust sufficient to require not just the impeachment, but the removal of a president if those allegations were proven. So in our view, even though it was not necessarily a statutory crime, this was exactly the kind of behavior that we thought should be encompassed in an abuse of the public trust that would be a high crime or misdemeanor sufficient to prompt impeachment. John, progressive, conservative, and libertarian teams also surprisingly converged in a series of proposals to limit executive power. And remarkably, both the conservatives and the progressives would have replaced the Electoral College with a national popular vote with ranked choice voting. And both teams would have resurrected the legislative veto, which allows Congress to take the lead in regulation um, and repudiate executive uh, regulations it disagrees with. Uh, and the conservatives would have had a single presidential term of six years not eligible for renewal. You haven't read the Constitution, so I'm asking you to react on the spot. But what is your reaction to the proposals I've just mentioned, where both conservatives and progressives proposed in their constitutions to limit executive power. That's interesting. I don't know if those proposals themselves would uh, limit it, but I'm glad they're grappling with the fundamental uh, paradox <clears throat> of presidential powers, that you do want to have a, an executive that is bound by law on the one hand, but on the other hand, you need a part of the government that can react, uh, as Hamilton put it, you know, quickly, decisively, with speed and energy to unforeseen circumstances, uh, emergencies, foreign policy crises, and ultimately war. Uh, and so how you do that, there's no one right or wrong answer. I'm not saying the Constitution strikes the right balance. You know, this has uh, really beset our greatest leaders. Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson, for example, he thought the answer was to limit the president as narrowly as possible, which sounds a little bit like this project you've mentioned, but then he would have allowed the president to act illegally. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, he would say, go ahead, use what he called the prerogative by Louisiana, even though the constitution he thought didn't allow it. And then just ask the people after you do it for your, their blessing. Right. And uh, so this is Jefferson's effort to have a strict constructionist presidency, but he knew there had to be a flexible part of the government too. Or you could be like a Lincoln, right? Lincoln tried to justify all of his actions, uh, including the Emancipation Proclamation, which was attacked as being unconstitutional, as fitting within the executive power, the take care clause, and the commander-in-chief power. 
And he, like Hamilton, thought the executive power could grow in response to amazing challenges like the Civil War. Uh, and so I tend to fall on the Lincoln side. It sounds like your proposals tend to fall more on the Jeffersonian side. Um, and so I often like to say, uh, you know, would you be willing to test uh, these limits on the presidency against something like the Civil War? Where I think this, I, I think um, there was a long, for a long time uh, among scholars, there was this view that Lincoln was an unconstitutional dictator. And there's a famous book from the 60s called Lincoln the Dictator. Um, but now I think the view has come to be among scholars that Lincoln actually was very careful to try to justify everything he did within uh, the powers of the executive. And so I ask, you know, the people who would propose a constitution that would limit the presidency, could it survive that test of the Civil War? Could a single president of six years, uh, you know, tied down with a legislative veto with uh, more explicit limitations on what the president can and can't do, maybe with a lower impeachment clause, uh, would it have allowed Lincoln to have successfully brought us through of the Civil War? Or would it have forced the presidents to become more like Jefferson, where they can't do it under the Constitution, but because it's so important for the nation's benefit that they just violate the Constitution repeatedly and just ask for political blessings afterwards? Melissa, I know that this was several months ago, which in 2020 terms seems like several constitutional years, but the progressive team did propose a series of mechanisms to limit executive power and increase Congress's oversight authority over the executive branch, including um, requiring uh, information and testimony from administrative officials and to ensure that the law enforcement power isn't abused for partisan gain. You said the attorney general should receive the votes of two-thirds of senators to be confirmed. Can you describe those and other proposals that you and your progressive colleagues made to limit executive power? And do you consider them Jeffersonian or would you present them in some other way? So the progressive constitution, again, we did make some pivotal changes uh, that were, I think, big departures from the existing document. Um, But I think they were animated by what we have seen over the last couple of years. So in that sense, you could think about this entire project as a kind of time capsule because it really is a response, I think, to some of what we've seen over the past couple of years and what we thought were, I guess, failures of the Constitution to respond to an administration that was perhaps more disruptive than others had been in the past. So we wanted to be able to enable the Congress to conduct oversight in a meaningful way. We wanted to ensure that the Department of Justice could remain independent of the executive and and of the president specifically. And so those changes were made with that goal in mind. And I think, again, were we writing this at another time and another moment? I don't know that we would have thought that those changes were necessary, but it did seem urgent given what we had seen coming out of the last four years and and certainly what we had seen coming out of the impeachment, um, which literally had concluded just as we took up this project. And we the people friends, once again, you can check out those constitutions at the Constitution Drafting Project homepage at constitutioncenter.org. Uh, John, back to the year in review, the death of George Floyd and the protests that it inspired were a seismic event for the nation. In an op-ed in Newsweek, uh, you wrote, domestic military use is lawful but not yet prudent. Tell us why you think that the president's response uh, 
had the right answer on the law, but not on the policy, and then discuss other reforms that were called for in the wake of the violence, including qualified immunity reform, and tell us whether you think that there are any legal or constitutional reforms that might be salutary. Yeah, so there's two different questions here, which is one, what was the uh, power of the government to respond to unrest in the cities? Um, and here talking not about peaceful protest, but some of the pictures we saw, particularly Portland and Seattle, uh, actually downtown San Francisco, where unfortunately some aspects of the protests or people connected with them became violent at night. Uh, and then there's, a, I think, a separate question, just what, did, what do we want to do in terms of police reform? Uh, to uh, after this uh, last year, and actually it's been more than a year where you've seen these kinds of killings go on. What kind of changes could we make uh, to the law to deter them, uh, to punish them, to try to reduce them? So with the unrest, I, I didn't think in the end believe that the use of uh, troops or federal officers was necessary, um, but it's always something that's uh, possible. Uh, you know, the last major... Uh, deployment was here here in California in Los Angeles after uh, during the Rodney King riots um, in 1992. Uh, it's a case when uh, a city just cannot enforce law and order anymore. You see so much uh, violence and disorder that uh, it becomes the responsibility of the federal government. Uh, not to enforce the law, not to try to catch people for criminal acts, but to just restore basic uh, law and order. Um, this is done through something called the Insurrection Act, which has been on the books uh, almost as long as the Constitution has been on the books and uh, has uh, been used in its earliest forms by uh, President Washington on. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to, th to think that uh, this, the state of our cities never quite got that bad, um, that city and state uh, law enforcement were able to restore order. Um, and that they were able to allow the proper scope for peaceful First Amendment protest. But I was worried at some points. I mean, some of the videos that were coming out, especially the West Coast cities, were getting worrisome. Um, in terms of what to do uh, in terms of reforms, um, you know, there's this uh, interesting constitutional statutory question about whether uh, federal officials or state officials should have any immunity at all for violating the Constitution. Um, uh, you know, Akhil Amar Yale, you know, our teacher, he has argued very, you know, very, uh, very strongly that the regular common law of torts and regular ways of recovering against people who harm you should exist against officials as well as just private people. Um, but we've had in our law for so long, more than 100 years, this idea that officials should be immune. Now, I want to say these are pretty much created by the judges and by the courts. Um, and so uh, one question is, this is in my, my sense, this is a kind of judicial activism of its own kind where judges kind of created this immunity that doesn't really sit in the constitutional text. Uh, and then, uh, so I think it's all, certainly up to Congress if it wants to, to overrule it. I, I doubt that that's going to happen. I, I mean, in fact, I think, in fact, I think that was a sticking point in congressional efforts this year to try to pass a bill in response. So I think that at least initial steps could be things where we talked about the federal government's role in other areas um, to act interstitially. For example, if state authorities aren't able to police themselves, they should be able to use 
their resources in terms of funding. Federal investigatory agencies like the Justice Department already, I think, have tools. Maybe they need more money and resources. You could have a larger civil rights division. You could have more money and grants to states to get them to bring their police practices up to speed. I I would just be um, reluctant to try to change significantly the constitutional law doctrines uh, that govern this area about the use of force, about reasonableness under the Fourth Amendment, or even about immunity, and rather look for, I'd like to see more increment, first let states, of course, be responsible for trying to bring their uh, police forces up to par, but then uh, relying on the federal government uh, to use spending and and measures like that to try to engage in incremental reform. Melissa, the same set of questions to you. Do you believe that President Trump's response to the protests that followed the killing of George Floyd were consistent with the law and constitution or not? And when you look at the range of reforms that are on the table, including reform of qualified immunity, which do you think should be adopted? So let's just first start with um, the response from the president this summer, which was alarming to many, um, the threat of deploying federal troops to many of these cities. Um, John has rightfully mentioned the Insurrection Act of 1807. One of the requirements for the use of the Insurrection Act is that the states actually request federal assistance in dealing with these situations within their own borders. And and the idea behind that was to prevent the federal military power from being deployed as sort of a general local law enforcement um, gap filler, basically. So again, I think John is right that there are situations where this question of the balance between federal power and state power is really um, important and and maintaining that is important. And again, I think the threat of deploying federal military power in situations where state and local officials were saying that it wasn't necessary and in fact might actually exacerbate um, problems within their borders was meaningful and that needed to be attended to. Um, In terms of the efforts to reform the jurisprudence and the policy around qualified immunity, I think those are really difficult but important conversations. Um, Almost immediately, the administration began talking about its own efforts to deal with this. Um, The Trump administration issued some guidelines that they planned to deal with via executive order that would require the Department of Justice to do um, more oversight, provide greater federal spending incentives to local law enforcement officials, I think all of those are really important and much needed um, incentives, and and we could probably do more with that. Um, It's also worth noting that during this period, Congress also began debating the question of reforming the doctrine around qualified immunity, and there were a number of cert petitions filed with the court that addressed the question of qualified immunity as well. Interestingly, uh, the court refused some of those petitions. I think at one point uh, there might have been five that were declined. And I think it's not because the court wasn't interested in the question, but rather they recognize that the issue had really gained some traction in the other branches of government, um, namely the executive and in Congress, and they were sort of staying their hand. So in that respect, um, I I thought it was a really interesting issue, and and the way that it played out in all three branches of government was also um, really important and interesting as well. Well, it is time for closing thoughts in this wonderful uh, year-end constitutional review. 
And John, the first one is to you. And I'll just ask the simple question, what do you think was the most significant constitutional development of 2020 and why? Wow, that's a tough one. I had. I mean, this has been such a crazy, disruptive uh, year, unlike probably any I hope we see in our lifetimes again. Um, I guess, uh, you know, let me say, I think a lot of people often, when they hear a question like yours, assume it's got to be the Supreme Court. And I think one thing this year reminded us is that much of the Constitution operates uh, outside the purview of the Supreme Court. Think about all the main topics we talked about today, uh, protests in the streets, um, the impeachment, the response to the pandemic. All of those major constitutional issues are not handled ultimately by the Supreme Court, or if they will be, they'll be years from now. They're all things that are resolved through other constitutional methods. And ultimately, so I guess the main one to me is the, the one we began with, which was the presidential election. We had an extremely disruptive president. We're living through a divisive time. I mean, I think maybe politics haven't been this uh, polarized since the Civil War and Reconstruction in terms of the, you know, the, how much the different parties seem to just dislike each other. Um, but yet the, the electoral system worked, right? The constitutional processes went forward. Institutions have been tested. As Melissa said, they've been stressed, but they did not waver, right? They actually yielded, I think, in the end, the person who won the election, which was Joe Biden. Even though you have a president who would like to use any power that is available, you know, available to stop him, there's nothing he can do about it. And so uh, I think that's the, you know, maybe the happy ending to 2020 is that the Constitution set up institutions in all these areas uh, and under the most severe test in our lifetime so far, uh, they all came through the test, uh, you know, I, I think uh, pretty strong and uh, ready to continue into the future. So that's why conservatives, unlike progressives like Melissa, are <laughs> optimists at heart. I knew you were going to sneak that in there. Well, Melissa, the last the last word is to you, uh, optimistic or not. Uh, what do you want to leave our We The People listeners with? And please tell them what you think the most significant constitutional development of 2020 was and why. So, I mean, this has been, it feels like a very long year, but it has been jam-packed with constitutional developments. This year saw the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which gave American women the right to vote. We also saw in Virginia the last date necessary for the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. That will, of course, engender more questions about whether or not that is validly um, ratified and, and would be a valid amendment to the Constitution. But Everything suggests that the Constitution continues to sort of go about its business despite the Sturm und Drang that goes on around it. And, and, and that was kind of the point. Um, and so I, I rarely agree with John, but I find myself agreeing with him on this point. Um, despite all of the drama that occurred this year, um, a, a very fraught presidential election, um, a pandemic, uh, unrest in the streets, the Constitution just kind of did its thing. And now, going forward, you know, there are all of these questions about what will happen, but it will kind of continue to do its work. Perhaps it will be amended in the future, but nonetheless, it continues to strive toward a more perfect union. 
Beautiful. The Constitution did its work, and we will continue to strive toward a more perfect union. Thank you so much, John Yu and Melissa Murray, for an elevating, illuminating, and inspiring conversation about this remarkable year of constitutional debate. And thank you, dear We the People listeners. I have to tell you what a privilege it is every week to be able to learn along with you from the greatest constitutional minds in America, like John and Melissa, in a spirit of civil dialogue and respectful conversation. I can feel you learning along with me, and it's just a a, a privilege to be part of this great enterprise of constitutional conversations. In my mind, I'm thinking of the words of Justice Holmes, who said that the Constitution is an experiment, as all life is an experiment. Every year, if not every day, we have to wager our salvation upon some prophecy based upon imperfect knowledge. And the ability to listen to John and Melissa and all the wonderful scholars who've been with us all year gives us more perfect knowledge and leaves us with faith in this evolving, imperfect, but ultimately durable document of human freedom, which is the U.S. Constitution. So happy new year to all, uh, sending good wishes to you and your families, and please join me with a very warm thank you to John and Melissa. John, Melissa, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks. It was great to be with you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor, Ashley Kemper, and Lana Ulrich. Thank you so much for your wonderful ratings and reviews, We the People friends. Please continue to recommend the show to friends, colleagues, anyone, anywhere who is eager for constitutional debate. And always remember, as the holidays approach, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education, learning, and debate. It would be so great for the new year. If you haven't done it, give a dollar or five dollars just to signal your support of the Constitution Center, of We the People, and of our educational mission. You can do that by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. Sending you warmest wishes for the holidays and look forward to seeing you in 2021. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. 